Hua could barely mount his horse on September 21st, 1883. The once great Chiricahua leader had been reduced to a drunken mess, and the Mexicans near Casas Grandes, where he was living at the time, were all too happy to supply the mezcal that kept him very well lubricated. Within hours, he'd be found face down in the Casas Grandes River. The stories of how he met his demise are myriad, some saying that he fell from his horse along a high bluff, or that he was on a wild horse that threw him, or that the bank collapsed beneath him. Neither do the accounts agree on whether he drowned, hit his head, or even had a heart attack. Decades later, his son, trying to preserve his father's memory, would claim that his father had not been drunk that day, but that it was definitely the bank that collapsed underneath his horse. Whatever the version, at the time of his death, there is no doubt that the old chief was past his prime. Out of favor with his people, not really in charge of any band or family group anymore, and heavily liquored up most of the time, his death seemed tragic but almost forgettable. However, it's the timing of his unexpected demise that makes it worth noting. Because it was September of 1883, most of the Chiricahua had gone with Crook to San Carlos three months beforehand. Even the ones who had stayed in Mexico had promised to go after settling some business. And Hua's death made sure that he never saw that business concluded. So, when the rest of the Chiricahua finally headed for Arizona once again, Hua would not be among them. I'll leave it to you to decide whether that was a blessing or a curse. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 99, Chasing Charlie. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we dealt with Crook having a showdown with the Department of the Interior about overseeing the Chiricahua he had brought back from Mexico. He won that political battle and was able to get everything arranged as neatly as possible to keep the very tentative peace he had just forged with the Apache. But if our time together has taught us anything, it's that any peace with the Chiricahua was going to be tenuous at best and fraught with entropy. Well, that and to not trust Napoleon, because remember kids, never trust Napoleon. Re-listen to episode 14 if you need a refresher of why. For Crook, the trouble started not with the Apache who were at San Carlos, but with all those who were still down in Mexico. Because as the months wore on, Geronimo, who had promised that he would be right behind Crook, was still nowhere in sight. And that left the general open to a lot of political backlash, especially from hardliners in both Arizona, the Army, and Mexico who wanted the Chiricahua to be punished and then removed to Oklahoma, which was America's dumping ground for Amerindian tribes they didn't like. Crook tried to articulate his position in an editorial for the Arizona Weekly Citizen in Tucson, where he says that no one wanted to see any Apache that had murdered Americans get away with it. But at the moment, they had to be humbled and agree to go peacefully to a reservation. His editorial said, quote, But what are we going to do? To kill them will not bring back the dead, and to punish them will only lead them to leaving the reservation. 
They will take to the mountains only to be exterminated after a long period of time, and then only after they have killed thousands of white people. Now they are willing to go back to the reservation and settle down. They are tired of war and anxious for peace. End quote. And he makes a great point. Given the limited options available after the decades and centuries of backstabbing and double-dealing, this was the best solution. But that was never going to stop men like Indian agent Philip Wilcox, still smarting from being outmaneuvered by Crook, who insisted that the Apache be rounded up and summarily punished. Adding to this chorus of voices were leaders down in Mexico, including Colonel Joaquin Terrazas, the man who had killed Victorio and had been fighting Apache most of his professional career. Terrazas issued a formal demand for the sake of the safety of the state of Chihuahua that the United States punish any guilty Chiricahua for their raiding and pillaging through Mexico. Crook was asked to respond to this demand, which he did in August 1883, saying that he had full sympathy for Terrazas and his people and what they had hoped this vengeance would accomplish. However, Crook was a pragmatist and noted that it would be virtually impossible to exterminate the Apache should they hole up in the Sierra Madres again. Heck, his campaign into the mountains was more psychological warfare than actually grinding them down. Therefore, the best choice to keep the peace going was to accept their surrender with the understanding that their past raiding would not be avenged, if, and only if, they behaved themselves going forward. Crook hadn't made this agreement, and to go back on it now would be an act of bad faith, one, by the way, that the Apache were always expecting. It would also make those Apache who hadn't come in yet just retreat into the mountains and keep doing what they were doing. Tarasus would later grudgingly admit that Crook had a point, but that didn't stop him from complaining about continual Apache raids in Chihuahua. But even as he tried to assuage Terrazas' concerns, Crook was growing anxious about those other Chiricahua still in Mexico. It had been nearly two months since he had returned to Arizona, and they had yet to make an appearance. Hearing rumors about raiding along the border, Crook even dispatched men to see if they were the Apache he was waiting for. At the same time, he asked Crawford at San Carlos to talk to the Chiricahua there to see if they knew when to expect the rest. Now, these assured him that Geronimo and the others would show up, you know, any day now, but still, as the summer was quickly passing by, the general asked to send an expedition down to Mexico to make contact. Captain Crawford asked for and received permission in August to send a small delegation of Cherokee down to Mexico to find out more about the delay. Meanwhile, the pressure on Crook was being turned up every single day. Newspapers, which had lauded the general upon his return from Mexico, now began to turn on him, especially as reports of more raiding down in Sonora and Chihuahua came in. One went so far to say that the general deserved, quote, the censure of our people from one end of the land to the other, end quote. Another, hearing that the Apache were possibly trying to negotiate at Casas Grandes to stay in Mexico, observed that the Apache had shrewdly outwitted Crook, which, as we'll see in a few minutes, was an observation based on faulty information. But more than the issue of raiding Apache, Crook had to deal with the firestorm over the fate of Charlie McComas, yet another objective from his campaign that he failed to deliver on. Well, to be fair, that's because the six-year-old had already died, but that wouldn't be common knowledge for decades. 
Now, Crook had asked Crawford to have Mickey Free ask around San Carlos to see if they could find out anything. This led to the discovery of several children held captive among the Apache and their return to their families, but nothing about Charlie. The boy's uncle, a powerful state senator from Kansas named Eugene F. Ware, started his own fight for information about his nephew. While ostensibly praising Crook for his campaign, Ware started making insinuations about the fact that there had been no news of the boy's whereabouts. He would say, quote, Since General Crook's campaign, nothing has been done to obtain the boy. It seems to me that if the boy was a British subject, the government would get him if it cost about half the island to do it. End quote. He then proceeded to make the unfounded claim that Crook's men had been too busy drinking whiskey, playing poker, and watching plays to do their jobs, something that sent the general into a right tizzy. Crook, notoriously thin-skinned and someone who hated drunkenness and sloppy units, responded with some very commendable restraint. He said that he was embarrassed that he had been unable to obtain any news of the boy, but he had hopes the recent envoys he had sent to the border might be able to learn something. While Crook was saying this, it's definitely worth noting that some people, including Chief of Scouts Al Sieber and Judge John A. Wright, a former law partner of Charlie's father, correctly believed that the boy had already died. And it was a letter from Wright that caused Crook to make the sort of PR blunder that would make any communications director want to quit their job. Wright's letter informed Crook of two men from Deming, New Mexico, who were talking of ransoming Charlie from the Chiricahua at Casas Grandes. Though, please keep in mind, no one actually knew where the boy was because, I repeat, he is long dead at this point. Crook blew up at this suggestion, and his reply was condescending and not carefully worded at all. And it contained one line in particular that the general's enemies seized on. He wrote, quote, I am rather sorry that those gentlemen who went after Charlie McComas let the Indians know that we are anxious to have the boy. As in all my dealings with them, I was careful to impress on them the fact that we cared very little for the boy, but showed them the great advantage it would be to them to have him return to his people. End quote. Now, from a strategic point of view, Crook makes absolute sense. The first rule of dealing with a salesman is make them think you could walk away at any moment, right? But from a human point of view, it was a disaster. All everyone heard was a brusque senior military officer with no children of his own, I may add, say that he cared very little about Charlie's fate. Suddenly, the heroic general wasn't looking so heroic anymore. Smarting from all of this, in September of 1883, Crook was desperate to clinch his victory with the remaining Chiricahua coming into camp. Captain Crawford, after speaking to the leaders at San Carlos, dispatched Lieutenant Britton Davis, 10 Apache scouts, and three Chiricahua men to head toward the border to get some up-to-date news about what the heck was going on in Mexico. So, here's what the heck was going on down in Mexico. When Crook left the Sierra Madres in June 1883, the remaining Chiricahua had every intention of coming up to the reservation. But they had several things they wanted to wrap up first. 
A high priority was New Mounds, as many of theirs had been captured or scattered when Crook had taken their camp. The Chaconan leader, Chato, would later explain that rounding up stock in Mexico was difficult and that contributed to their delay coming north. But he also conveniently forgot to mention a two-week raiding trip in mid-June that hit several Mexican ranches and killed several people as part of this rounding up stock. Then there was the matter of getting everyone together, which was wrapped up by June 25th when Hua and his small entourage rode into the main Chiricahua camp. With the arrival of the now discredited chief and his party, the Chiricahua numbered around 190 people, with 60 of those being fighting men. But by now it was monsoon season in the desert, and that delayed their travels yet some more. During this time, all the chiefs, including Hua, agreed that going to San Carlos was in everyone's best interest. However, before they headed up into the United States, the chiefs wanted to take one last stab at recovering any Chiricahua prisoners that were still held captive in Chihuahua. To do that, they needed more supplies as they headed east, so again they took to raiding to get what they needed. Two parties were sent out, one led by Geronimo, that reconvened at the beginning of August after killing more than 15 people and walking away with a lot of Mexican livestock. Then, on August 9th, 1883, just days after Crook was responding to Terraza's demands, the camp received an unexpected visitor. A woman who went by Manianita, a wife of Geronimo himself, walked into their camp. This was the same wife that had been captured when Mexicans had thrashed Hua's camp in January, which we talked about back in episode 96, and she had been taken to Chihuahua City. She had managed to escape, and then, with no shoes, had walked for 44 days into the Sierra Madre Mountains, letting her instinct guide her to where she thought her people would make camp. Not only was her miraculous survival a cause for celebration, but she had good news as well. 35 more Chiricahua were alive in Chihuahua City. These included two of Geronimo's other wives, the wife and children of Chato, and the Apache leader Chihuahua's brother. This news had an instant impact on the Chiricahua's plans. It didn't matter that they were two months overdue at San Carlos. Those prisoners had to be freed before they even thought of heading to the reservation. So the group then rode eastward, and on August 30th, 1883, two women approached the army officers at Casas Grandes, saying that Geronimo, Hua, Naiche, and others wanted to make a deal in exchange for the release of the captives. And it's these negotiations that the newspaper in Arizona got word of and used to paint Crook as having been outwitted by the Apache. Like I said, faulty information. The Mexican officials began negotiations, but mainly so they could lure the Apache in and then kill or arrest them, especially Geronimo. I have to say, this kind of move from the Mexican army is so predictable at this point that I would compare it to the antics of a wily e. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon. So, I'm sorry for the officer in charge of this operation because the Apache are just going to eat all the bird seed without the anvil falling on them. During these talks... Hua did request that Chihuahua set aside a 20-square-mile section of land that would basically be a new reservation for the Chiricahua, 
And if they would just let them have a year's worth of tools and seeds, then they would settle down and become farmers. I know this seems at odds with what I was saying earlier, how everyone had agreed to go back to San Carlos, but this sort of arrangement would have been more to Hua's liking. As I said before, he had been born and lived most of his life in Mexico and always considered himself a quote-unquote Mexican Indian. It's also entirely possible that this was some sort of tactic in order to help the Apache get what they wanted. And it's not outside of the realm of possibility that Hua proposed this and nobody listened to him. He had very little standing now with his fellow Apache, and all reports say that he was drinking heavily. During these talks, which occurred twice during September, Geronimo did most of the talking for his people, showing increased importance for the one-time renegade who, just several decades earlier, constantly broke away from the main Chiricahua body to kill Mexicans. The Mexican officers said that they needed to check with their superiors about letting go the captives the Apache demanded, but in the meantime, they invited the Chiricahua to move closer to the city. In reality, it was all a delaying tactic to wait for reinforcements to show up so they could fall on the Apache and utterly wipe them out. Many of the Chiricahua leaders were highly suspicious of just this sort of double-cross, so they never had the entire group at one place at the same time. But as far as I can tell, negotiations kind of fell apart after the death of Hua on September 21st as the Chiricahua mourned the once great leader. After all, he had been Geronimo's friend and mentor for years, despite his loss of influence and drunkenness in the past nine months. By sheer coincidence, the news of Hua's death reached Casa Grandes on September 23rd, the same day as two Americans arriving in the city. These were actually the two Americans looking for news of Charlie McComas that Crook had complained so loudly about in his ill-worded letter about impressing upon the Apache how little he cared for the boy. The Americans had heard that Hua's family had a boy with them, which they wished to see and potentially rescue. With Hua having gone into the river, they were instead met by Geronimo, roughly five miles outside of Casas Grandes. They described the Apache renegade as well-proportioned with broad shoulders, 190 pounds, and 5 feet 10 inches tall. They also estimated his age to be 37, though in reality he was in the neighborhood of 60 at this time. We also learned that the years of running and fighting had taken their toll on him, as they reported that Geronimo had a bullet wound across his forehead, a bullet still lodged in his left thigh, and the third finger on his right hand was bent backward, also the result of a bullet wound. What's interesting is that Geronimo would not talk about the boy right away. In fact, he first asked them a question. What did they know about what Crook was up to? He asked because a raiding party from earlier that month reported finding tracks that they thought might have been from Crook's Apache scouts. Wary of Crook lying in wait for him, Geronimo refused to come into Casas Grandes with the boy. Instead, he told the Americans to come back to the same place the next day to make the exchange. But then, Geronimo saw a Mexican riding a horse that he thought belonged to Colonel Terrazas, his other major boogeyman, and he refused to meet with the Americans again at all. 
One of them asked to come directly to the Apache camp to negotiate, but was shot down out of fear that the Mexicans would compel him to say where the camp actually was. At a complete impasse, the Americans returned to New Mexico under the impression that Charlie was still alive. Which just adds to the irony of the story because A. Crook and his scouts were nowhere near close, B. Neither was Colonel Terrazas, and C. The boy in Juas camp wasn't Charlie McComas because, as I have repeated several times now in Dickensian fashion, Charlie McComas was dead as a doornail. Finally, in early October 1883, Mexican officials tried again to restart the stalled negotiations. They even arranged for three Chiricahua captives to be brought to Casas Grandes to hopefully be traded for three Mexican prisoners held by the Apache. But the Chiricahua were on high alert that particular day, possibly because some Mexican citizens who had traded with them in Casas Grandes had tipped them off to beware of treachery. Nietzsche, who was present, recounts that they immediately knew something was wrong. He says, quote, We found there about 60 soldiers had changed their uniforms and put on old citizens' clothes and had their guns hidden under their clothes. They had started out to our right and left to get around us. End quote. Geronimo clocked the ambush and said to another leader, quote, We might as well go back. There are too many soldiers. End quote and the Apache were able to withdraw before the camouflage soldiers were able to completely encircle them. Before taking off, however, Geronimo told the leading Mexican official some made-up excuse and that his band would be back in, you know, 10 days to agree on a treaty. I then like to think he said something like, meep meep, and sped out of view while the Mexican official looked at his Acme catapult completely flummoxed. Chateau would later sum up their experience in the entirely true and succinct phrase, quote, The way the Mexicans make a treaty is to get us all together and then kill us. End quote. But when Geronimo and those with him arrived back at the camp after not getting caught in this ambush, they had some more unexpected visitors. Remember how I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that Crook had sent some men to the border to check up on when we could expect the rest of the Apache to come in? Well, this group included Bonito, who had spent the last five weeks trying to track down his Apache brethren. Ironically, it was Bonito, who about two years beforehand had convinced the Chiricahua to break out of San Carlos, who now spoke highly of the reservation and that the Chiricahua there were not only well-fed, they were safe. The only reason he was there now was because Crawford wanted to see what the holdup was. The timing of their arrival wasn't only coincidental, it was downright providential. Just that day, the chiefs had realized that dealing with the Mexican government was a no-go. They were always going to try and lure the Apache into an ambush. At this point, Crook and his promises seemed like not just the best option, but the only option. Bonito also took Nietzsche aside privately to persuade the young chief that going to San Carlos was a great idea. Nietzsche's family was on the reservation, so it didn't take much to convince him to come in from Mexico. Soon, other leaders quickly consented, including the powerful warrior and Victorio's prophetic sister, Losin. All in all, about 100 Chiricahua decided to follow Bonito back up into Arizona. But you may remember that I said there were about 190 Chiricahua still in Mexico. So what about the rest? 
Well, here again, we must get into Geronimo being Geronimo. He was suspicious of going to San Carlos. After all, this is a guy who like two seconds ago broke off negotiations with two American men because he saw a horse that looked like it belonged to someone he feared. Of course he's going to be wary about returning to the place he's broken out of twice now. He very rarely trusted American officers, and though he might have feared Crook's almost supernatural powers, that didn't mean he was going to blindly walk back onto the reservation. So, in his place, he sent his 18-year-old son, Chapo, to see if San Carlos was really everything Bonito said it was. Meanwhile, he and others were going to once again expand their horse herd, having traded away a lot of animals for ammunition and mezcal at Casas Grandes. On October 6th, 1883, the first of several companies left the Chiricahua camp to head towards Arizona. Avoiding settlements and other places where people would start shooting at them, the Chiricahua slowly made their way north. And I do mean slowly. At one point, they came to a stop, and the leaders decided to send some men ahead, but the rest would just sit and rest and relax for eight or nine days. You can just imagine how much the acid ate through Crook's stomach lining with the Chiricahua taking this little pit stop. They sent a messenger ahead to find the patrols along the border to prepare them for their coming, but the patrols were nowhere to be seen, so this messenger went all the way to Fort Bowie, arriving on October 22nd, so more than two weeks after the group started moving. Instantly, the army officers sent for Lieutenant Britton Davis and his group, who had just started probing around in Mexico looking for Nietzsche and his people. They also sent rations of flour, coffee, sugar, and salt for the Apache, as well as buying beef to have it at the ready for them. Meanwhile, the main group of the Chiricahua prepared for the last leg of their journey across the border. This included a 25-mile slog over open flat ground, which had everyone nervous. They didn't expect to run into any Mexicans, but they had few guns and less ammunition just in case anything did go wrong. They eventually split into three mobile groups and made this last trip at night to cut down their chances of being spotted. Nietzsche and those with him were acting as a rear guard of sorts, and at one point they were actually chased by about eight Mexican soldiers, but they eventually were able to get away, however they lost about a dozen cows in the process. When they did finally meet up with the army officers in Arizona, the Chiricahua continued to be more than a little suspicious and refused to allow anyone to come actually into their camp. Of course, part of that could have been the herd of horses they had with them, most of which had been stolen from Mexican ranches. Nietzsche reported that Geronimo and Chato were coming. It would just take a little bit longer. But Chapo, Geronimo's son, was among the company and was going to report back to his father if the Americans were genuine in their promises. Like everyone else, the army officers began to ask about the fate of Charlie McComas. Mickey Free mingled with the Chiricahua to find out more about the fate of the boy. After some conversations with Nietzsche, Mickey apparently got the impression that Charlie was safe and sound with Geronimo, though Nietzsche was apparently talking about some other boy who was with the Chiricahua. This may have been the same boy that had been with Hua's family that the two Americans near Casas Grandes had also mistaken for Charlie. 
Nightshade would actually lead the camp well ahead of everyone else, after receiving word that his wife up at San Carlos was ill. He would arrive at the reservation on November 1st, 1883, two years and a month and a half since choosing to flee with the rest. The rest of the company would wait for about another week for stragglers who had stopped to pick up a cache of supplies. In reality, this group was raiding and pillaging as they headed north, eventually rounding up some 109 Mexican horses that they drove into Arizona. I guess they wanted one more taste of that sweet Mexican Apache life before settling down for good. Eventually, the full group reached San Carlos on November 15th, so two weeks after Nietzsche. With these 100 Chiricahua now on the reservation, Crook was able to trumpet his victory. But it didn't matter to Crook's detractors if a thousand Apache had suddenly shown up at San Carlos. None of those who came in were that widely renegade Geronimo, who was still down doing whatever he wanted in Mexico. And until that one thing changed, no one was going to sleep well at night. So join me next week as Geronimo finally comes in from the cold, only for the stage to be set for his third and last breakout. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.